Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this event of the LSE and the Kanyada Blank Centre. Um, I'm not going to spend much time introducing Javier Marias because I assume if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't be here. Um, and usually people who are reckoned to be in line to be a forthcoming recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature and who have seven of their books as Penguin Modern Classics, I imagine you have a rough idea who he is. Um, but that will probably emerge in the course of our conversation. Maybe. Okay, well. Right. Um, I want to ask Javier a number of things. Uh, we'll sort of chat together and then uh, there'll be time for questions um, from you. Something we were just talking about uh, earlier on is the fact that when he was much younger, Javier translated a number of extremely difficult books of ranging from the problem of translating Joseph Conrad, who of course had already translated from Polish in his head, mm. um, and the one that struck me as most difficult, uh, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, and that raises a question for me about how that influences or how it may or may not have influenced his style. But it's also an issue because the protagonists and, and or the, narrative, or the narrators of a lot of his books are actually translators or people who translate. And at one point, I read an interview with you in which you described these protagonists as people who have renounced their own voices. Personas que han renunciado a sus propias voces. Do you, I mean, you don't think, I assume, that people who translate do so because they've got nothing of their own to say? Well, it depends on the translator. Uh, some translators have something to say, some do not, of course. Uh, but, um, yeah, um, I think when I said that in, that in that interview, or probably I have said that uh, more than once, um, yeah, I was referring to the fact that, uh, I mean, it seems a contradiction, in fact, if you, if you say a narrator is someone who has renounced to his own voice and at the same time he's the one telling a story and, as it were, occupying the stage and uh, telling the story his own way, as all narrators do. Uh, but to a certain extent, um, it's not, it's not a literal thing, but I remember that uh, ever since the 1980s or so, my novels have had narrators in the first person. And, uh, for instance, the, uh, the one in, in the novel called The Man of Feeling uh, is a singer, an opera singer, who in a way is someone who is reciting a text written by someone else and, and giving his voice to that text and, of course, the music as well. And then um, in my next novel, which was All Souls, uh, it was a, a, a lecture, lecturer in, in Oxford who, in a way, is also, I mean, a professor, someone teaching is someone who, to a certain extent, is always conveying knowledge that not always or, in fact, sometimes very seldom comes from him. 
It's knowledge that is already received and that he conveys. Of course, the people who teach professionally, as you do, will disagree on that. And uh, no doubt there are many professors who are original and they have their own things to, um, to, um, um, to bring to, to the students. Uh, but generally, you could say a professor is someone conveying knowledge that is not his own or not necessarily his own. And then, of course, in Hearts of White, which was the next novel, it was a proper, a, a, a proper interpreter, a work for the United Nations, etc., etc. And then, in the next one, to, uh, Tomorrow in the Battle, Think of Me, the narrator was someone who worked as a ghostwriter, mainly, uh, who wrote some scripts for TV, and, but also was a ghostwriter. In fact, there was a scene in which uh, he became a ghostwriter for the King of Spain, a King of Spain, not necessarily Juan Carlos, but uh, a king of Spain, and uh, who was very interested in, 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 in having this ghost writer and, and having his own story told by someone uh, who might write fiction. And on and on, it's true. And, uh, well, it has to do with the fact that um, I think that... It, let, let, let me for a moment... Uh, associate this idea with another idea which I have expressed uh, on various occasions, which is that I think that the ghost, the literary ghost, the figure of the literary ghost, is probably one of the best possible narrators in the world. Because he is someone, uh, it's not that I believe in proper and real ghosts, but I certainly enjoy very much literary ghosts, the ghosts in literature, ghost stories, etc. And the idea of a ghost is someone, in fact, I have one short story in which the narrator is a ghost, someone dead and someone who is blamed by the fact that now he knows everything, everything that he didn't know during his lifetime, and remembers everything also like that Borges uh, character, Funes el Memorioso, who remembers everything. And, um, and I think that uh, a ghost has the advantage for the telling of a story that everything that has happened to him has already happened. Nothing else can happen to him. And on the other hand, he's not indifferent to what he left behind. That's precisely uh, the, the, the trick with ghosts. They come back. They haunt. They worry about the people they left behind. They try to benefit or punish them, etc., etc. And I thought, well, being dead, as it were, but being able to still talk, to still tell, is a, a possibly, a possibly a marvelous way uh, of telling a story, in, uh, one in which you know the ending, in which nothing else can happen to you, but at the same time you are not indifferent to things. And it has to do with that kind of figure, you know, the figure who is out of the scene and at the same time concerned with the scene and with the characters. But uh, I don't know if I'm, going, uh, I'm being too long, but, uh, but because you, you, you mentioned that the other thing was translation. And uh, certainly I'm, I, I can say that even if I haven't translated any, any, re, any proper book for many years now, my, my work as a translator took place mainly in the 1970s and 80s. Um, from now and then I, I translate a poem by someone that I enjoy particularly or things like that, but I haven't done a, a proper book. Uh, 
into Spanish for many, many years now. But when I did, um, well, I must say that it has influenced me in many aspects as a, as a, as a, as a writer, as an author. And uh, not the least of them being, of course, that I think it's the best possible exercise for anyone who wants to be a writer. Mainly if you are young, if you're beginning. I started publishing when I was very, very young. When I was 19, I published my first novel. Um, and, um, and of course, uh, if you're always my, my... What I always say is that a, a translator is someone who is rewriting something in a different language. But he's rewriting something. And something sometimes very, very good, extraordinary. And if you're able to rewrite acceptably... Joseph Conrad, or Lauren Stern, or Sir Thomas Brown, or Yeats, or Faulkner, or Nabokov, just to mention Thomas Hardy, just to mention a few authors I translated works by. Um, if you're able to do that, that means that, of course, that's not going to give you any imagination or any invention or inventory power, as it were, but your instrument, the instrument with, with your language, uh, you, you are forcing your language to something uh, which is extraordinary. I mean, to be up to the level of these figures. And then you learn uh, a lot. You learn much more by doing that, if you do it well, acceptably at least, than by writing three novels that you put in, inside a drawer. I would say so. And in that, in that respect, I think... I, and, of course, you learn a lot from these authors because um, it, is always, it has always been said that a translator is a privileged reader. I, I agree with that, but I say he's also a privileged writer, in a sense, because you're rewriting. In your, the wording is always yours in the end. I mean, there is, there is no, no single sentence in any language... I remember when I was teaching theory of translation in Oxford, in Madrid as well, in America for a few months, I remember that one of the things I, I used to say is, well, everyone knows what I love you means in English. Everyone knows that, and everyone thinks they can translate that. But, uh, and that it's simple. But you can translate it in many ways, really, for instance, um, we have in Sp you don't have that in English, but in Spanish we have tú and we have usted. Uh, there's two ways of, of saying you. And, of course, usted is the respectful one or the one used mainly in the 19th century, even from children to the parents and things like that. And, uh, and uh, it depends on what context you find the, 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 a dialogue in which someone says, I love you. It would have to be with usted or with you. It, if it's of someone said to a woman, it would be la quiero or la amo. If it's to a man, it's le quiero or lo quiero, etc., etc. So the, thing, the, the simplest sentence is always ambiguous. It's never unequivocal, as it were. So the wording is always yours, and you're always choosing. We, one of the things we were talking about earlier was whether if you translate when you're young, you're being actually very irresponsible. 
I mean, I, mean, I, I admitted to you a couple of things I'd translated that I wouldn't dare look at in my dotage. But you, <laughs> won't, you, won't you mention them in front of your... Well, he, can I say this? He did, he did something I, ne- I would have never dared to do, which was uh, to translate from English into Spanish, uh, which is exactly as if I had translated anything from uh, Spanish into English, which I, would, I, I wouldn't have dared to do that at all. Um, so you've been more ir- irresponsible than I was. But certainly, <laughs> but certainly I did a few things. Um, I mean, I, when I translated Tristram Shandy, I was, I don't know, it took me a couple of years or so of my life to do that. But... Um, I think when I studied, I was probably 24. When I finished, I was 26, something of the sort. And uh, sometimes I think I wouldn't be able to do it now. Uh, I I wouldn't be able at all. And it seems to me the kind of thing that you do when you're very unconscious and you are young and uh, and said, yeah, I'm going to translate Tristan Shandy. Um, I mean, 900 pages, yes, uh, 18th century prose. Yes, and uh, a lot of puns and, and uh, untranslatable, uh, untranslatable things. Well, I, I will have footnotes, so why not? Explaining the puns, if necessary. And uh, so I started and, and, and did it. And apparently, I haven't reread it, of course, in a very long time. But very recently, uh, I, was, I, was, I was having a chat at uh, the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. And, I, and several people... Young people came with a book for me to sign it. Of course, the translation, considering that I think that you're rewriting, um, I think you can, you can uh, inscribe them for someone uh, as your own. And, and so I very often say my best work, uh, no doubt, with Conrad or with uh, Stern and things like that. And they said, and they said uh, well, apparently it's still readable because, you know, translations get old more in a much much faster than uh, than uh, than uh, the work by an author uh, you know what borges said uh, he said um, i have the bad luck of of being of of of, of having spanish as my native tongue therefore for me the beginning of don quixote is en un lugar de la mancha de cuyo nombre no quiero acordarme and that's it and there is no possibility of changing the words. I mean, those are sacred in Spanish. But, in, but instead, I can read Shakespeare in different versions. I can read uh, 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 the Odyssey in different versions, etc. I'm lucky enough to... But, uh, you know, uh, a translation does get old. But apparently, it's still, it's still all right. And I, I sometimes think, well, it's the kind of thing that when you're a boy, you do... Uh, I was telling Paul... Uh, before that, I, I, uh, a few years ago, I visited uh, the building where my school was in Madrid, and uh, it was a, an American, in fact, building, strange American building in Madrid. Um, that, um, and it had some huge blocks of stairs, several of them, of, of marble, white. And I remember that when I was 12 or something like that, I jumped those blocks, from, from, from top to bottom, maybe helping myself a little with the rail, the railing, the rail, the railing? Either. Either, okay. 
maybe, but I did, and when I was an adult and I saw those blogs, I, did I do that? I mean, I, <laughs> I was absolutely crazy. So I have the same feeling with Tristan Shandy, for instance. And I, did I do that? Yeah, apparently I did. But I must say that, um, that Joseph Conrad, who has been, uh, and of course, Lawrence Stern, because of that, because of my having been in, in, in touch with him that way and for at least two or maybe two and a half years or something like that, I know he has been a very strong influence on my writing. I learned a lot from, from him. And uh, one of the things, of course, I learned uh, from him and also from Cervantes, but of course... We must remember that Stern was an enthusiast of Cervantes, so uh, in a way it's, it's, you could say that both belong to the same family, in a way. And, uh, but I, I learned it rather from uh, Stern, is the suspension of time, which I have practiced with, with good or bad luck in some of my novels, the thing that, well, I'm going to stop this, Something's going to happen, but no, listen, uh, uh, I shall make a few digressions first and uh, on this and that, or I shall make a flashback before. And, uh, of course, the most exaggerated uh, occasion in which I did that was in the second volume of my so-called trilogy, Your Face Tomorrow, in which uh, there is a scene in which someone with a sword is about to cut someone else's... Uh, well, someone else's, obviously, head, and uh, <laughs> not his own. And uh, would you say in English someone else's or someone's in this case? Either. But <laughs> <laughs> someone else's seems like redundant, doesn't it? Sounds it is, yeah, yeah. It you're, is redundant. Someone. Well, someone's head. And uh, I suppose a very impatient reader will say, well, let me know if, if he does it or he doesn't do it in the end or something. And... Uh, and now there are pages in which, of course, that, that's, that's also something having to do with, with uh, Cervantes. But uh, uh, there are a few pages on swords, and a few pages on swords, and what a sword means now, nowadays, because one, one thing was the sword in, the, in its time, when it was uh, the usual weapon, as it were, and something else, what it means now, and why we are probably more afraid of a sword than of a pistol nowadays, and then there is a uh, flashback about something that took place in the Civil War and all, and all that. So, but that's, an, that's something that you all already find in Don Quixote, precisely. There is, um, in, the, in the first part, there is uh, an episode in which Don Quixote meets uh, Bizcaino, a man from Biscay, Basque, a Basque man. And I can't remember exactly the details, but there is a moment in which both are about to strike each other with their swords. And then Cervantes, well, that's, that's not, Cervantes stops the action and says, well, but, but let's go back to something else. And if I remember well, may, I may be wrong, but if I remember well, he never goes back <laughs> to that. So that's those two swords... <laughs> Don, Don Quixotes and, and the Basques, those two swords have been, uh, have been there, uh, you know, up for 401, no, for 411 years now, because that's in the first part, which was published in 1605. So it has to do with that, of course. So he was bolder than I was, and he was bolder. 
than Stern himself. There's another thing I'd like to ask you about translation, which is, of course, the translation of your work. Many years ago, I was very friendly with the Cuban writer Guillermo Cabrera Infante. Very good friend of mine as well. Mm. And his wonderful book, Tres Tristes Tigres, he, he played a significant role in the translation thereof. Mm-hmm. And I we talked about it a lot. And we had an argument. And I, as the, the daring young English person who didn't know the Spanish that well, but nonetheless was not inhibited about translating into Spanish... <laughs> Um, I told him I thought that the book should be called She Sells Seashells Uh in English because, in fact, the translation is Three Sad Tigers, but Three Sad Tigers doesn't really mean anything in English, particularly in English. It's not Three Trapped Tigers? Three Trapped Tigers, sorry. Uh Yeah, sorry, Three Trapped Tigers. But that doesn't mean anything either. I mean, the issue is that... Tres tristes tigres. Comiendo trigo en un trigal. But it, yeah, you know, well, it's, it's a, a trabalengua. So I don't know how you say that in English. Tongue twister. Huh? Tongue, tongue twister. twister, yeah. But, but it doesn't mean really, I mean, tigers eating wheat in... Sad tigers eating wheat doesn't mean... Well, exactly. So, but, I mean, this is the point. Anything, of course. She sells seashells doesn't mean anything either. But yeah. it, it's, a, yeah. it, it's the whole issue of how far do you go in recreating, you know, in, in the other language. Mm-hmm. So in, in, your, in the case of your books, I know you're, you think very highly I do. of your translator. I mean, do you intervene? Uh, did... No, I don't intervene anymore because I don't have the time for that. When, when, I, when, when, when I first was translated into English, which was many years ago now, I did have the time or I had or maybe the enthusiasm to do that and I did, I did take a look uh, at the translations into, of my works into the languages I know I can read, which is English, French and Italian. Um, but uh, well, that's, that's a lot of work. On the other hand, uh, you find the authors are too fastidious uh, with their own work and then you see nuances uh, which seem important to you and maybe and the translator says well but you cannot say this in French why not uh, you say and say, no because in French yeah but can't you know we are very we are really a pain in the neck we can be and um, there was a moment in which I decided I wouldn't do that anymore because it takes a lot of time it's, it's, it's really hard work and in the case of, of, of course, I should do it uh, now and then with some... Uh, I've been having problems with my French translators in the last years, and we've been changing from one to another and things like that. But I think Margaret Jill Costa, who has translated, if not all my books, most of them, into English, I think she's, she's a marvelous translator, and uh, I'm in touch with her while she works. And, of course, whenever she has a doubt or a query... She asks me, and of course I very gladly help her as, as much as I can. I do that with all translators who ask me things, queries, doubts, etc., because I know what it is to... I mean, my problem with all these books I did translate in the past is that all the authors were dead, and I couldn't ask Sir Thomas Brown or Joseph Conrad, what do you mean exactly here? Uh, and I wish I could have done that on many occasions, particularly Joseph Conrad, by the way, 
who is who is devilish really it's 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 maybe i mean tristan shand is a much longer book than the one i did translate by conrad which is a normal book of 250 pages or something like that but i don't think i don't think it was less work translated translating conrad than than translating stern he's difficult to read conrad i find is it that's why it's there's a, there's a sort of clunkiness about the prose clunkiness I don't know, I think it's a marvelous prose, but of course I'm not British, so maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I realized when I translated that book, which by the way was not one of his books of fiction, it was non-fiction, a marvelous book titled The Mirror of the Sea, which is not one of his most famous ones, but I think one of his best. Um, and uh, besides, you know, the problem of having to look for every nautical term and there were many in the book, and see what, and of course I've, I've, I've never been nautical myself at all. So uh, besides that, it was the, the, the complication of the prose, the richness of the prose, the, 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 the amount of synonyms he uses, which I tried to reproduce in Spanish as best I could, and, um, and uh, some ghostly, I mean, sometimes he uses words in the more oblique sense or in the more tangential sense, and, uh, which is difficult. I mean, I, sometimes I, I, I was wondering what on earth, and then I went to the dictionary, something not all translators do, by the way, nowadays, and I went to the dictionary once and again and again, and maybe on the, you know, the, 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 the eighth meaning of the word, yeah, it could be that. It could be that. That makes sense, I, 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 I said to myself. But only the eighth. I mean, he probably because he, he learned it English when he was, I think it was 21 or something like that, when he learned English or, or started to speak it. Maybe because of that he was very careful. He knew the language probably much better than many English uh, people. And... Um, and uh, it was, I mean, it, this book, as I said, it was about 250 pages, and I remember it took me about eight months devoted only to that. That was, it, it was the worst business or the worst bargain I've ever done in my life because I was paid, I was paid per month much worse than a charwoman, if you still use that word. Do you still use charwoman? No. In English? That's old-fashioned English, I know. I'd rather English, not say in public. No. Well, but I'm a foreigner. And my, yeah, my, some, my, some of those aren't, you see. My, my English can be bookish. Uh, can, can't it be... Uh, what do you say now? Cleaning lady? Something yeah, like that? usually. Oh, okay. I tend so, to say la cha-cha. Yeah, well, that's not very well. That's not very good in Spanish either nowadays. But anyway, I, I was worse paid than that, I'm sure of that, if you, if the amount of time, the amount of hours I... I so, um, which made me diffident, uh, by the way, of any other translation of Conrad into Spanish, because I thought nobody's so silly as myself to do it this way, you know, to do it so carefully and so... Um, and probably it's not real Conrad, uh, because no one will have taken so much bother. No. Right, I think we probably ought to talk about your, your new book, which is one of the reasons why we have you here in London, Thus Bad Begins. Now, one of the things that 
several women said to me, uh, fans of yours, when they knew we were doing this event, mm -hmm. was just how wonderfully they thought you created female characters. Um, and I want to ask you something about that. And yet, reading uh, Those Bad Begins, I kind of had a feeling that it was a rather misogynistic book. I mean... The <laughs> well, well, some of the characters may be, but the book itself? Well, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because well, you, uh, you, cre you create characters, and yeah. then the question is, are they, you know, to put it in, in, in an extremely banal way, are they likable characters, unlikable characters? And it seems to me that there is not in the book a single likable character. And Probably one of the not. reasons why none of them, to my mind anyway, you know, sure, just sure. A are not likable, it's nothing to do whether it's readable or engrossing mm. or whatever, but one of the reasons why, to me, they seem not likable is because the, 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 they tend to be misogynistic, even the naive narrator in his way. Well, yeah, but in a way... sort of prurient and... Sure, but in a way he, he recognises that, in a way. I mean, the... Uh, the the, 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 the the narrator, uh, for those people who don't know the book, um, the narrator is telling the story when he's a middle-aged man, probably, uh, because of what he says now and then here. But the action takes place in 1980 when he says he was 23. So during the action of the novel, he's a, a, a young man <clears throat> in 1980 that is only five years after Franco's death and in a country that had been suffering not only a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship for almost 40 years, but also um, an imposition of customs and habits and uh, certainly a way of looking at women. I mean, you don't have to know, the people here who are British don't have to know this, but during Franco's time, Unbelievable, unbelievable as it may sound now. Um, I don't know if it was until the end of the dictatorship, that is, until his death. But certainly for many years in the 1940s and 1950s, probably in the 60s as well, uh, women became of age. Did you say that? Uh, Finish the sentence. I don't know what you're uh, saying. <laughs> um, mayor de edad, ser mayor de edad. Yeah, thanks become of age, yeah, yeah. officially, I mean, um, at 23, whereas men did the same thing at 21. Uh, a married woman wouldn't, couldn't have a passport uh, of her own unless authorized by the husband. Uh, she couldn't even open a bank account without permission from her husband. Things like that. So it's kind of society, a very particular one in Europe, uh, that until almost, maybe not in the 70s so much even. Um, so in a way, that narrator belongs, I mean, belongs to that period in a way, and even if he's not a Francoist at all, um, he has probably inherited some, 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 of, the back, some of the background he's, he's lived in. On the other hand... During the novel, he says a few times, he says some things about, about uh, young people in general 
and said, well, you realize when he wrote, uh, for instance, there is a sentence which is mentioned two or three times in the novel, in which I don't know how it's been translated into English. In Spanish, it says, los jóvenes tienen la conciencia y el alma aplazadas. That is, young people very often have their souls and their consciences postponed, more or less, something like that, postponed. It's something that comes later in time, which I think, myself, is true. But certainly a young man, a young man or probably a young woman, doesn't acknowledge that, doesn't accept that, doesn't realize that. It's something that maybe the man or the woman you become later uh, realizes and says, well, yes, when I was young, I did things probably vile, vile, not terrible things maybe, but base things in order to get laid, for instance, yeah, things like that, mainly, mainly young men, more than young women then at least. Um, I, uh, the, 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 the strength of desire, desire not only in sexual sense, but in general, the strength of desire in, in youth is, 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 uh, is tremendous sometimes. And then um, I could, the, the narrator himself says, well, yeah, you, you have less scruples probably when you're young you have le not everyone, obviously. I know very young people full of scruples too. But it's very easy that you, your impatience for getting things, for uh, succeeding if it's a matter of success, uh, for not being a virgin anymore if it's, that's a problem or the main problem for the young, for the young man, for instance, uh, makes you have less scruples. And, and in a way, he does recognize it, and he's not very proud, of course, of his behavior when, when the action of the novel takes place. Uh, I, I think he mentions it doesn't make him more likable, but he's... And, and, but you must, you, must have, you must have in mind, of course, that, that he's one more character. He's a narrator. And then, because of his being the narrator, he seems more... He seems closer to the author, we could say, than the others. But he's not. He's one more character as the others. That's obvious. Aren't all characters, in a way, part of you? Or not. Okay. Oh, no, maybe not. No. Well, let, Some, let, well let, I hope not. Let, let, me hit you, let me hit you with one ran, random example. The, there's a point at which not the narrator, but arguably the central character. Muriel. Muriel. Says, uh, I've always wondered how people dared to contract marriage and did so for centuries when marriage was for life. Okay, so that's Muriel. Now this is you in an interview. You said, people only get married when they've no other option, out of panic or desperation, or so as not to lose someone they couldn't bear to lose. Uh, so... And, and, and the question is, any link? Yeah, probably there's a link, but uh, I, can't remember if, I can't remember if in that interview I was speaking tongue-in-cheek. Could be, could be very well the case, because I do, I do, I do say things tongue-in-cheek in interviews very often. Indeed. Yeah, yeah otherwise, you get, other, otherwise you get bored. But anyway, yes, there is, there is a similarity there, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Now, and, uh, well, uh, aren't we right, both Muriel and I, 
in a way. <laughs> I can't afford to be quoted on this. Um, you know, there are people here who know my wife, and therefore. <laughs> now, oh, but that that maybe maybe that uh, I suppose that I, I'm not sure, but maybe that that interview was after the publication of my previous novel, uh, The Infatuations, in English, in which uh, there are some, some paragraphs I, I seem to remember in which um, uh, it is said that, well, we try, we tend to think when we marry, when we are in, with someone, or that, I mean, people in general like to think that She's the one, or he's the one, and uh, I really chose him, or she, he, or she did really choose me, and all that. But the truth is, we never know about that, and uh, you never know where someone comes from, whether the person who finally chose you uh, had been rejected by someone else before, <laughs> and then, um, well, she or he contented, as it were himself or herself with you because you were there or you were available you you know you, you never know quite these things um, unless unless it's someone you you know since childhood and uh, and you've been all, always together but those marriages are not they generally fail I mean uh, even 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 those starting at college usually failed as well. Well, so, be before we get into more trouble with this particular no, it's thing... No, not trouble. Why should it be trouble? I mean, things you may talk about. But the other great theme of the book, it seems to me, is the issue of... I mean, it's very Spanish. Uh, historical memory and the way in which people deal or don't deal with the past mm -hmm. in Spain. Uh, there's some quite bitter reflections on how some Francoists rewrote their own autobiographies to become democratas de toda la vida. You know, people who were actually fascist or certainly very close to the regime had murky pasts, but who managed to rewrite their pasts as, um, as, as, as Democrats. Um, there are some, there's a, some wonderful passages about the whole issue of how people survived and what survival mm. meant. I mean, there's one particular bit where you say, if, if, if I can find it, you say, um, you talk about people who were purged and suffered reprisals and were prevent, prevented from freely exercising their professions. I assume that you're thinking of your father. Not only. But, no, indeed, but you know, that, many, that, that's many, how it touched you. Many people, yeah. Many people, all kinds of people, and uh, architects, uh, doctors, uh, lawyers, I mean, all kinds of people. Absolutely. And you say, some were elderly or mature men who spent the rest of their days watching their widows and daughters going out to work. And, other, and I mean, why it's, it, it's brilliant is, of course, that the situation made their wives into widows, mm -hmm. e even though the husband uh, was, still was, alive. was still alive. Is I mean, in writing that, in, in dealing with that sense of, 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 of that aspect of the book, were you thinking of anyone in particular? Uh, you, you mean of the Red the Democratas de toda la vida? Oh, the other ones. Oh, well, so many. 
too many, in fact, uh, public or public figures or, or not public figures, both. I, <clears throat> I, the main character having to do with that is a, is a, is a doctor. Um, and uh, I must say, for instance, that I've, I've met some doctors precisely um, because one of my uncles was a doctor and he was surrounded. And, well, he was a, he was a phalangista in its day and he went to the División Azul, which people here don't have to know, but maybe you could briefly explain because you know more about that than I do. Well, the División Azul was the uh, section... The Spanish uh, contribution of, uh, to, to... To the Eastern Front, I mean, that fought with, with the Germans in the Eastern Front. And, of course... Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, he had been um, not a Francoist, uh, rather a phalangista, uh, but he, and, and he was surrounded by a group of people uh, who probably came from the same, had had a similar past and all that. So I met some doctors uh, who were apparently normal people and... Uh, and of course, when you're a boy and, uh, and all that, which is doctor something, doctor, they all had strange names, I must say. Some Italianizing or, or Germanizing surnames, very often. I remember one whose name was Dr. Jacchetti, which is obviously Jacchetti, the uh, Spanish form of Jacchetti. And uh, there was a, another one who would have very, very funny name, Dr. Corripio. Which <laughs> Sounds terrible, but it, it seems strange. And Dr. Angelotti and things like that, and, and some German ones as well, so I don't know. But um, I didn't realize that they probably came from the same division, divisionistas, as they were called, the people, the, the Spanish people who went uh, to the Eastern Front and fought for Hitler in, the, in 1941, was it? Yeah. In 1941, and uh, in Russia, and uh, they had a terrible time. On the other hand, uh, and uh, they they were probably very, most of them were very naive and and brave people. Uh, you cannot deny that. And um, and of course, uh, some of them apparently were people who had been democratas de toda la vida. I mean, long life uh, democrats. And uh, after Franco died, and uh, they erased their own past, as it were, very, very... And, of course, there were also many cases of public figures, writers. I know about writers for obvious reasons uh, more than about any... But also painters and uh, people who had been, um, uh, had been collaborators, strong collaborators to Franco's regime or who had been, uh, who had been very active in... in uh, in the defense of, of the dictatorship and historians as well, and uh, uh, not to mention names. But, of course, I know a lot about that, not, not because of myself, but because of my father. My father was, my father was a philosopher. He was a, a writer, too, not a, not a fiction. But uh, he had been in touch with um, most intellectuals ever since he was very, very young. And uh, he was a Republican, uh, he was a soldier for the Republic during the war. Even if he didn't fight, he was in Madrid, which was uh, the rearguard, uh, uh, the guardia. Mm -hmm. And then he, he said, I know I haven't, killed, I haven't ever killed anyone, 
which makes me very happy because I, di I, di I, didn't, I didn't went into combat. But he was working for the Ministry of War, etc. And, um, and since then, he wrote articles and things, and, um, and, and then he was imprisoned after the end of the war. Just a couple of weeks after the end of the war, he was imprisoned by Franco's police. He was very lucky. He was only in jail for three months, and he could get out. The normal thing would have been that he had been shot, and then I wouldn't be here. And, um, but, well, he was lucky enough uh, to go free after three months' imprisonment, uh, but not, not lucky enough not to be retaliated. He was, he was, the normal thing for him would have been to be a university professor. He couldn't enter the university. Um, he was forbidden to write in the Spanish press uh, until the mid-50s or so. He, he didn't exile himself because of several reasons, but very often he went to the United States or to Puerto Rico to teach there because that was the only way he could make a living and all that. So I heard him, and he was a very truthful man, and I say that, and he, I've heard him about people of his age, not mine, and uh, I don't know, for instance, uh, historians, uh, I know of a historian who was, who was very widely appreciated and was a great Democrat, and maybe he was. Some people developed uh, in time, and they truly did that. Uh, I'm not going to say that everyone just, how you say, cambio de camisa, how do you say that? Change their shirt. I mean, uh, yeah, you say they have the same expression, metaphorically speaking, to change shirt. Cambio, cambio de chaqueta. Yeah. You know, people who. I remember one thing my father used to say is, I, I do believe in change. I do believe in development. I do believe that someone who is here. A turncoat, is, is, of course, sorry. What? English, you say a turncoat. Turncoat, yeah. He said, I believe that someone who is here is here, if I see him walk this way, you know, yeah, why not? I mean, that can happen politically, whatever. But what I don't believe is magic, you know, that he's here and all of a sudden he's here and, I haven't, and we haven't seen him walk. And that's what happened. I mean, some people did that. Some people did walk and you could watch them walk and you could, for instance, Dionisio Rodrigo, to mention one, um, you could see them and say, well, yes, this man was a terrible fasc fascist in 1939, but he evolved, he did. But some others were, as, as if by magic. Were. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, this historian I'm referring to, he, he was someone who in 1940 or something like that wrote things like, uh, uh, we have to persecute the desafectos, which could be the not the, the non-adepts to, to Franco's regime. And then, and then after that, the tibios, which is the tepid ones. The lukewarm. Oh, yeah. The lukewarm. And then the lukewarm. And then, well, this man passed as a great Democrat, and, uh, and uh, I remember having read, after Franco's death, having read interviews with him. He died many years ago, but he was still alive then, in which he talked about his exile. 
And I knew from my father that his exile had consisted exactly of having a post at the Spanish embassy in Paris for a few years, Franco's embassy, of course, Franco's embassy, and that, that was turned into my exile, things like that. And that, that, that was very irritating, you know, that for, for the people who knew, for people like my father, who, who had always been a Republican, and then in, uh, by the end of his life he was more a conservative than anything else, but he never, he never supported Franco's regime, never. And in, in, uh, there was a, even a moment when, um, when uh, maybe in the 60s or early 60s something, uh, the, he, was, he had been banned from the university, and at a given moment some people told him, well, maybe we could arrange this. But there was a problem. In order to be a professor at the university, you had to swear the principles of the Movimiento. The Movimiento was the name, the movement, literally, was the name of the one and only party, which was Franco's party, existing in Spain. And then you had to swear allegiance, allegiance yeah. to the principios, principles of the Movimiento. And everyone did, because otherwise they couldn't enter the university, and people did it like this, you know, or whatever. But my father said, no, I won't do it. Not even like this. I don't want to swear that. So I won't. And he didn't. And then it was very offensive. I mean, this kind of thing was very offensive for people like him or others who really had not uh, stained themselves at all with, with, with coll collaboration with the dictatorship, etc. So, yes, of course, there were many, many people who did that, many, many people who public or not public figures, yeah. And that was, um, that's, that's a problem, I must say. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, you are a historian, and, uh, uh, but it, it's, it's something about which I don't, I can't even agree with my own self. I'm not sure what to think. Sometimes I think things should be, things should be known, at least, if not punished. Sometimes you think, yeah, things should be punished. Sometimes you, you think, well, maybe not punished. We came to an agreement. You probably know that in, in, after Franco's death, there was a general amnesty. There was an agreement not to punish anyone, not to bring anyone to trial, whether Francoists or the people who had done terrible things. Well, the people who had done terrible things on the other side during the war had been taken to trial very soon in the early 40s, etc., or just shot or whatever. But most of them. Um, sometimes I think, yeah, this, this, this it should be known, but sometimes I think if, if we insist on that all the time, we cannot move on. A country after a civil war, particularly a country after a civil war, there are some pages in the book in which it is said, one of the characters, Muriel, that you dislike so much, um, <laughs> Um, he says something uh, about the war, uh, about the character of a civil war, and says, that's, that's, that's the worst possible thing to happen to a country, because it's something that lasts and lasts and lasts. And it's, it's worse than any other war with a different country. And, uh, and it's true. It's true. And uh, uh, I, I sometimes realize, for instance, that now... It's been, I think, 75 years since the end of the war, something like that. Yep. Yeah. Which means that when I was young, 
when I was young, when I was in my 20s or early 20s, the same time had elapsed from the so-called Hispano, um, uh, the, 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 the so-called Cuban War, Guerra de Cuba, which is something, of course, you British people here don't have to know anything about, but Spain happened to be at war with the United States, of all people, um, in, 19, in 1898, and uh, that's when Spain lost Cuba to the United States. And then, um, funnily enough, and still more funnily considering that one of my uh, grandmothers was Cuban in, in origin, and she left Cuba because of that war when she was little. Um, to me, that sounded like something absolutely remote, as remote as, I don't know, the Roman occupation of Hispania or something like that, you know, something absolutely remote. And about 70 years had elapsed since then when I was young. Why doesn't it seem remote the same way now? Something like the Civil War, when, the, when, when more or less 75 years have elapsed since then, because it was a civil war, probably. Well, because it was a civil war, because, in fact, the issues have not been resolved. I mean, if you think in terms of Nazi Germany or fascist Italy or, or imperial Japan, all of those more or less fascist regimes were defeated in, in an external war and, the, and, and all of those countries were occupied by foreign armies uh-huh. and those foreign armies imposed a process of what we could broadly call denazification. Mm-hmm. Now that didn't happen in Spain and so from the end of the civil war the Franco regime, I mean effectively in, in It's difficult to say how long the Franco regime lasted because it lasted longer in some places than others Mm -hmm. because we're not just talking about the end of the war. I mean, in some places, the regime was in place from the the late summer of 1936. So basically what you have in Spain is a near 40-year national brainwashing. Mm. You know, control through the church, the education system, the media and so on. And inevitably, it seems to me, that there is an awful lot of unfinished business. Now, in in the book, I mean, there's a, in a sense, what you were just talking about, there's a bit where Muriel says, and it's right, of course, everyone is furious and resentful about what was done to them or to their loved ones or their forebears, but not about what was done in general. Tackling the general would be a mammoth and absurd task one that no age and no nation has ever undertaken. Well, I'm not sure if it's true that no age and no mm-hmm. uh, nation has ever undertaken, but I do think that, that there, is, there is serious unfinished business in Spain. And one of the problems actually derives from... I mean, first of all, all governments, I mean, including the socialists, mm-hmm. were frightened to do anything. So basically, the so-called... Pacto del Olvido, the the pact of forgetfulness, there was a sort of general feeling, let's not take any risks. Let's not risk another civil war. Mm -hmm. 
But that was relatively short-lived. I mean, the, 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 because in, in the early years of the, of the transition, there was a terror that there might be another civil war, that there might be another dictatorship. Yes. But as time went by, it, that fear diminished. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, a, a lot has been done, mainly by local historians. Basically, it's about knowing. It's not about punishing. It's what you just said a minute ago. Yeah. It's not about punishing. It's about, it's about knowing. knowing. Yeah, which I think is... is uh, yeah, I think knowing is a different thing. I mean, uh, my personal opinion, uh, you're right about what you said, and, and if you compare Spain to Italy or, or Germany and all that, it's absolutely true. And, of course, uh, the problem in Spain is that the victors were the fascists, and, of course, they had almost 40 years to do whatever they wanted and to mold... Mold, you say, yeah, mold yeah, yeah. the society to as they wanted and all that, and they rather succeeded because one, one something else that happened in Spain, and as it happened also in Italy at the end of the Second World War and probably in Germany too, is that all of a sudden nobody had been a Nazi, nobody has been had been. But the truth is that soci- so sociologically. Uh, Sociologically. So, sociologically. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, the country was, was, was Francoist, and um, all of a sudden uh, people decided that it was not uh, worthwhile being, still being nostalgic of the regime, but they were. They had been until, until, until the day before he died. And, uh, and of course, uh, they succeeded in that sense in molding that part. What you said is true in, in the comparison, but at the same time, I'd like, I, I, I'd like to remind sometimes people that they weren't defeated. Uh, I mean, uh, Franco's regime was not defeated in, in the conventional way, and, and certainly Franco died in his bed, and nobody dethroned him, let alone killed him or anything of the sort. But, to a certain extent, something extraordinary happened after his death, which is that they were convinced, the Francoists were convinced to defeat themselves to a certain extent and to move aside, which is something that they they might have not done at all. Uh, There was a moment in which there, there was a parliament which was still Francoist, and then the king, Juan Carlos, said, well, I want a democracy in this country, uh, in few words, uh, very simply, I want a democracy in this country, and then let's have political parties that had been banned until then, for years and years, for decades, and uh, let's have elections and uh, everything that a more or less normal European, European country has, and let's try to be like the rest of Europe. And then that parliament, that Francois parliament, might have perfectly said, no, we want to stay here, we want to keep the power, we want to go on, and uh, they didn't. They were convinced not to. And they said, okay. And it said, that's mentioned in, some, in, some, in a small chapter in the book at the beginning, in which there, are some, there is some explanation about, about this kind of thing, what the situation was in Spain in 1980, because young people don't have to know, and certainly foreign readers don't have to know. 
And then they said, well, they, they practice the harakiri, which is quite extraordinary. They were convinced to do that, I think. And in a certain way, you can, you, you can say they defeated themselves to a great extent, not to the extent, of course, of, of being punished for what they had done or being banned or being, uh, or being, no, or being banished, not that. And they kept their privileges, more or less, and all that. But they moved aside and they accepted that and they accepted a communist party and they accepted all kinds of parties and they accepted things that for them had been, for, had been terrible and, uh, and, 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 and the worst uh, possible thing on earth. And uh, in that sense, I think that we've had 40 years of very slow, if you want, defrancoization, whatever you want to call it. I think that's happened. So there are issues that are not totally resolved because it's true that in Spain you never had what you had in Italy or Germany. But I think that very slowly many of the issues have, have been solved. Uh, unexpectedly, if you want. I don't know, maybe you, you don't think so. Well, I don't think people, <laughs> people haven't come to hear me talking about... Well, uh, we're not. You're here. And there's the whole... <laughs> let's share the world. Let, well, let's share the task. <laughs> well, apart from anything else, I mean, the one issue, and I'm, I'd be astonished if you, if you weren't in agreement, is the issue of corruption. That, that that's the worst thing that, in, in a sense, that, you know, that's got worse rather than better. But listen... Well, worse than when? <clears throat> not worse than, 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 than during the dictatorship, of course. <laughs> Well, it's, sp it's spread out more now. No. <laughs> no the, so? the only thing is that we didn't know it wasn't... I mean, there was a terrible censorship. Nobody knew anything. I mean, the censorship was so ludicrous. That's something else. The censorship in, during Franco's period, it was so ludicrous that, it, uh, for instance, in Spanish films, in the 40s mainly, or even 50s, you couldn't have... You couldn't, you couldn't see a murder because... In Franco Spain, there were no murders, yeah? or probably not even an adultery, because people weren't ad adulterers in Spain. You know, things like that. But even to the point, and let me let me tell. I've I've told it on some occasions, but so, just so that you have how yeah, an idea of how ridiculous they could be. My mother. She wrote one book, which in fact wasn't totally written by her. It was an anthology of texts by Spanish authors of all times on the subject of Spain. Spanish authors who had talked about Spain as a, as a subject. And then she prepared this anthology, which I think is a very good one, and uh, she wrote an introduction. And then she, that was in the early 40s. And then she, she was going to have it published and the title of the book was Spain as a Preoccupation, España como Preocupación. And it had a subtitle, which was Literary Anthology. But my mother's name, Lolita, to my father and to everyone, in fact, was, was all Lolitas. Her, her, her name was Dolores. And her surname was Franco. And then the censor said, España como preocupación, Spain as a preoccupation, plus Dolores Franco, which literally, literally means pains Franco, 
because Dolores, of course, is the virgin of, of the Dolores, but what literally means pain, you know, or pains. This, this, this can't go. My mother was astonished, and she didn't know what to do, and she thought for a moment, she said, well, maybe I could, maybe my sister could sign the book, and her sister's name is Gloria. So, <laughs> so she thought, I, I, I don't think they shall object to Gloria Franco, you know. To Gloria Franco, they won't probably object, but she finally, um, Gloria, by the way, this, this aunt is still alive, She's about 90 now. And, uh, and uh, she finally decided something absurd, which was to, to have the subtitle, Literary Anthology, as a title. It is absurd that a book is titled Literary Anthology. And then in very small print, as a subtitle, Spain as a preoccupation. And that was accepted. But just, just to mention one small, very small example of how ludicrous... They could be. So corruption, of course, was totally unknown to the population then, but it, everything was corrupted from, from, from the start. So I don't think... Uh, uh, corruption at present is a terrible thing, but I don't think worse than the, than the one during the dictatorship. And uh, on the other hand, uh, there was no justice. Uh, the, 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 the corrupt people were not accountable for it. Now they are, some of them. Some of them they are. They are being judged, they have been... Hmm? Very slowly. <laughs> oh, very slowly, yes. And of course, it's pro there's probably much more than we know. Indeed. And it's a terrible thing, of course, yes. That's one of the problems. But then when, when, when some people now, or some, some so-called new parties talk about... Um, there's something I wrote, uh, one of my... I don't know if you know that I, 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 I've been writing for... 13 years or so, uh, a Sunday, a weekly column in El País Semanal, uh, in, in the Sunday magazine, and I write about anything. And uh, I, I recently wrote one about something that does irritate me a bit. Some young people and some of the so-called new parties, which some of them, in my opinion, are very old, I must say, but so-called new parties formed mainly by young people, are talking all the time about the regimen that is the regime of, 60, of 78, which is the year in which the Constitution was uh, approved and voted by the people. And of course, the use of the word regime is, 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 a, is, is full of ill will, because precisely the regime was the word that Franco used Franco and Franco is used for their own regime. They call him el régimen, you know. And then to associate what's come after Franco with Francoism itself is, uh, I think, is a villainy, really. And, um, and uh, of course, some of these people are saying that it was, everything was terribly done. And, and I think the, the so-called transition was far from perfect, uh, of course, there was. You had to. We people had to renounce to many things. Some of them we already mentioned uh, could have been done better, etc. But I think that all in all, it was a rather wise thing to do, and it it spared Spain a new bloodshed or probably um, 
another coup d'etat, for instance, etc., etc. But mainly, mainly uh, the, the, the politicians who did the so-called transition, the transition, of course, with some exceptions, I think they were not corrupt people. The ones that are corrupt are the ones now in the power, but they are not the same one. Almost 40 years have elapsed. And then they are trying to make a whole of the, of the thing and say, well, this was corrupt from the beginning. This was a mistake from the beginning. This is terrible. We must finish it off. And I don't think that's the case. I think I, we mustn't forget that with imperfections, with, with, uh, with a lot of mistakes probably and errors and things, but I think in, in the whole that so-called transition was something very positive. And it's, that's mentioned somehow in the book. Um, you said, well, at least we have a not anomalous country. Uh, far from perfect, of course, but a not anomalous one. Anomalous is a country in which, as I said, women needed permission for all the things I already mentioned, in which there were no p political parties, they were banned, in which there were no elections, no free speech, no free press, no, all those things, we've been having them now for 40 years, uh, as far as they can be had, of course. Some people would say, oh, that's, and you'd, some people would, would say that you, you never have that anywhere, not even here in England. But, and maybe they're right, of course, but uh, you see, you see I, th I think that thanks to that, Spain is more or less a, an, a normal country. By normal, I don't mean great. I don't mean a, just normal. I mean, similar to Italy, to France, to... Hmm. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I get as annoyed as you do by some of the criticisms that are made of the transition. And I think only people who don't remember what it was like... Or don't know, because, because they, they, uh, there are many people who were born with all these things now. And they, of course, I understand that. They take them for granted. I mean, people born in 1978... Mm, they, they always lived with all these things and they take them for granted and then they allow themselves to say why didn't you do it why didn't you put to jail all, uh, to begin with in that small chapter uh, rather at the beginning of the book in which I explain I say one thing which I do believe even if I say one thing but uh, through the, via the narrator is it because it was impossible to do it because nobody could have, even if, 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 uh, if uh, leftist Spain or Democrat Spain had decided to, to punish, uh, no amnesty, etc., let's, let's bring all these people to, to, to trial and to jail if possible, it, would have, it wouldn't have been possible. I mean, the only people having weapons there in the country was the army, and the army was still Francoist mainly, and we must recall that in 1981, that is one year after the, uh, the, the year in which the, this novel takes, uh, the action takes place in the novel, uh, there was an attempt of a coup. And uh, a famous one with it, you know, you've probably seen even here in England many times the uh, images of the tricornio, 
What's the name for a tricorne in English? A tricorn hat. Ah, tricorn. <laughs> tricorn hat. Um, and of course, a, a great part in, in something that was done as well, and it, now it seems incredible it was done, it was not easy, was to, de, to defranco the army, which for years and years seemed something quite impossible to do. And it's been done. And the, that's another merit. Indeed. Something those politicians should, should, should receive credit for, uh, I would say. Uh, but at the, at the time, it would have been ludicrous. I mean, the people would say, no, I, we, we want Fraga Iribarne in jail. Or <laughs> Fraga Iribarne had been not, not, not the worst minister of the many ministers that Franco had in different governments, but one, one very active and very, uh, well, I don't know. How, 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 how could you do that? No, you couldn't. I mean, that's, that's couldn't. I don't think you and I disagree very much about any of this. However, we've got oh, 15 yes. minutes, and I think we need to let people in the audience... Sure. I, I have, have forgotten a, about it. I'm sorry. ...have a go at you. Um, young lady in the front there. Sorry, there's a microphone coming oh, around. yeah, that would help. Sam, I see that your, your, your theme is very... Or your main theme in many of your novels is the... The, what can be told or what should be um, told and what should not be told, what should be hidden, you know? Mm -hmm. Probably. That, well, that's one of the subjects in, in, yeah. in, in, not only in this novel, in some, in some of them. It's, it's something that has obsessed me. In fact, um, uh, my, my novel, uh, Your Face Tomorrow, for instance, begins with a sentence saying... Uh, no debería uno contar nunca nada, or something like that. No one should ever tell anything, uh, which is absurd because uh, then you have a. Uh, then after that sentence comes a novel of um, 1,500 pages or something like that, <laughs> with an array of telling things. Yeah, but but um, yeah, uh, it's it's one of the things that uh, that worries me most, and uh, one of the things mo most people are very unaware of the importance of telling or not telling, and and, and the consequences of telling things or not telling. And uh, uh, I remember that um, I think that secrecy that has a very bad reputation nowadays, uh, and people in general are saying, we want to know. We want to know absolutely everything. And certainly we want to know what the Secret Service uh, does. Uh, whenever I hear that, I say, well, uh, they are secret, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, either we don't have Secret Service at all, at all, then we, we don't have it, or if we have it, let them be secret, because... Um, I, I, but I, I'm very astonished. I mean, to give you one example of, of this kind of thing happening nowadays with this um, <clears throat> will for transparency, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, sometimes I am astonished. Yeah, I watch the, the TV news in Spain, for instance, and then uh, one of the news is uh, the police have given a, uh, the, the, the police have arrested a terrible, a terrible gang of people who were, who were <clears throat> how do you say that, forging money? Yeah. Forging. 
forging money, etc., etc. And uh, by this, um, they used the, as they call it now, not they wouldn't say the dogs, but uh, or trained dogs or anything, but the canine unit. <laughs> okay, canine unit. The canine unit uh, and these dogs are. They teach them how to <clears throat> to smell money, real money or false money or whatever, and uh, <clears throat> and of course they 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 find where, where 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 they find money very easily the same way they f they find rocks or whatever, and I thought why why I, I mean if you tell me that you have arrested a a, a dangerous gang don't tell me how you did it. <laughs> Because next time, another gang shall know how to avoid being arrested to begin with. On the other hand, if you tell them about this marvelous canine unit, probably some of the crooks will say, oh, very nice dogs. They can smell money. So if we go into, if, if, we burg, if, if we burglar a house... Yeah. If we burgle our house, we, ha we may have one of these dogs to smell where the money, where, the, where they hid the money. And so, I mean, they're given ideas all the time, you know, by telling excessively. Uh, and that happens all the time in all kinds of things. And I think, um, I think that one thing that uh, is being lost is, is one of them is that sometimes you must not tell something in order not to give ideas to someone else or in order not to provoke mimicry, which is one of the plagues of our time. Everything is mimicked, mimicked immediately, and everything imitating everything. And you see, you see a fool doing something, and after that you have 100,000 fools doing the same thing immediately. And, uh, and sometimes you say, well, wouldn't it be worthwhile to keep silent about a few things? Or, to put it some other way, sometimes I think... Wouldn't it be worthwhile to not to tell some story which shouldn't be added to the huge, awful amount of terrible stories that we have in in the history of humankind, for instance? And sometimes I think, must we tell them all? Must we? Yeah. Sometimes I think yes, we must. And sometimes I think no, perhaps we mustn't. Perhaps not. Not add one more to. To the to the uh, to the pile. Uh, so sometimes it's again it's uh, perhaps one of the reasons why that is one of my preoccupations, not to say obsessions, which is a word I don't like to use with literary things. Uh, certainly, still I like you know some authors talk about my demons, which is terrible I think. Uh, but. Uh, it's because I don't have a clear, I don't, myself, I don't have a very clear idea of, of that. What should be told, what should be hidden, what should be silenced, what should be... Sometimes yourself, you don't know what to do about something. Uh, sometimes for me, for instance, it is important the way I have come to know something. If I have come to know something by myself, by my own, or by chance, then I feel more allowed to tell it to someone else than if it is something told to me by someone in confidence. Because if someone had some confidence, um, I don't know, I remember I had a problem, to give you an example again. 
I had a problem many years ago. A very good friend of mine, extremely good friend of mine, whom I also admired very much. Um, he was married uh, to a much younger woman. Uh, uh, to give him and that woman was very nice, and she had she also had some friendship with myself. And she was more like my age than her husband's. And um, I'd give a moment, well, she called me one day and said, can we meet for coffee or something? Because I, I need to tell you something, and, I, I, and it must be to someone who, is going, who, who loves my husband. And, who. and then she told me something I would, I would certainly have preferred not to know which you can imagine, that she was having an affair with someone else. And, um, and of course, that was a problem for me to begin with. I mean, that's something I would have thanked her not to tell me. Uh, that's one of the things that perhaps people shouldn't tell and shouldn't put on, on, on somebody else's shoulders, you know. And, if, and for a time, I didn't know what to do, because I, on, the, on the one hand, I thought, well, should I tell him? No, because I would be betraying her confidence in me. But at the same time, I felt very bad about his not knowing. And, uh, you know, you, you, you may find yourself in this kind of, of, of perplexities, uh, what to do. What, and, and many times we may wish some, not, not to have known something. And this is one of the subjects in this novel as well. Uh, one of the things in this novel... <clears throat> which has a political implication as well, but this is not a novel about politics. The novel has political implications, but it is a novel about private lives and about people and about characters. And one of the things that you find there is that when you have been deceived for, a, for too long a time, uh, as one of the characters says... <clears throat> Maybe the worst thing you can do is to undeceive someone uh, after a long time. I mean, I mean, if I am deceived by you three days ago, it's okay probably that three days later you come and say, oh, well, what I told you was a lie. I'm sorry. But if, if your life or a, 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 a big part of your life has been determined by that deceit or by, by that lie. <coughs> Perhaps after 12 years, I think, in the novel, you find a case in which 12 or maybe 15 years of... <clears throat> the problem for the person unde suddenly undeceived is that what that person has lived cannot be erased. And he lived it in the belief of something which was not true perhaps, but he did live that, and he cannot, he, he cannot unlive that, and he cannot cancel it. That's his own life. He cannot relive something else. And then to a certain extent, it's, it's a terrible thing to do when it's too late to undeceive someone, I think. But I may be wrong, of course. Because doubt is one of the things I, I have about all, 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 this, all, all these issues. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I spoke too long for your, to, your question, to your question, and maybe there are other questions from other people. We haven't got very long, but the lady, the... 
Do you ever reread your own works and? Um, a bay bun? Is it work? Do you ever read your own work? Read. Yeah. Uh, do you ever reread your own books? Oh, reread. If you um, look no. at everything you've written, um, do you ever have a feeling that you wish you could have changed something, some of your characters or some endings? No, um, the truth is no, I never reread. I mean, I reread them while I'm writing them enough times. <laughs> because I usually write every page, or rewrite every page several times. And then, uh, well, of course, I have to reread the whole thing in proofs, in the proofs, when I cor I'm correcting proofs. And uh, by then, you usually think everything is horrible, and, um, and you hate the book, and you are bored, and you don't understand a word of what it says. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and you're really fed up, and that's it. And uh, I would never take one of my books and reread. The only thing, of course, uh, as you may know, some of you may know, uh, I, 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 I recover some characters from one novel to another, or sometimes some phrasings as well uh, from one novel to another, and then sometimes... Um, I must go back to one of my novels and look for, um, did I say that this character had gray eyes or blue eyes? Because in order not to contradict myself, if I bring it back to life, as it were, in a new novel. It happened to me very recently. And, uh, <clears throat> and then when I'm looking for it, for the passage where I describe this character or whatever, um, um, it happens sometimes that I must read two or three, four, five pages. I must say that I usually have the feeling, which is not very nice, I must say, when I read that, is I did write better before. <laughs> now I do it worse. <laughs> what I'm writing now is trash. This doesn't sound bad. <laughs> so whenever I reread something, probably because I don't feel it so much as mine, as a text, because sometimes 20 years have elapsed or even more. They, it usually seems, but instead of, of taking the positive side of it, saying, hmm, not bad, I think, oh, what I'm doing now is real bad in comparison to this, so <clears throat> I'm never happy. Okay, one very quick question, and then we really must close. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things in your novel uh, that I uh, found interesting is sex. I mean, I see sex all around from, from, from the beginning to end. Sex? Um, sex, yes, absolutely. So you, you made as well a connection with uh, that Madrid of the 1980s where there was a sort of wave of freedom that all everybody was going out, that sex uh, again emerged after the Franco a dictatorship. I was 11 by then, so I missed the party. I was living in Madrid. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about that, that feeling uh, that, uh, that the, the Madrid people had in the early 80s? Yeah, well, sex had emerged before Franco died. <laughs> Much before. Uh, in the, by the late 60s or so, as, the, as anywhere else, uh, you know, there was a lot of sexual liberty or whatever it was called in English and all that. And, um, and um, even if we were under dictatorship, well, among young people mainly, that happened very much like anywhere else, I would say. 
But yes, of course. Uh, at the same time, one, one, once Franco uh, was dead, there was, uh, I mean, there was uh, an explosion, not of only of sex, of everything. And uh, <clears throat> which means that, uh, let me say just this. Uh, one of the things that I remember with, with uh, absolute clarity, and um, I was 24 when Franco died, uh, and I remember it with absolute clarity, and uh, and it's something that really struck me. Is that about six months after Franco died, to most people it seemed six years had elapsed since then at least. It seemed antediluvian, if you say that in English. Uh, it seemed that it had happened. It belonged to another epoch, you know. It was so so fast, um, the, the 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 forgetfulness <clears throat> of the of the daily aspects, as it were. I mean, the other aspects were more difficult to forget, but because, as we said before, they were still present in some in some uh, areas. But the daily life under Franco was so immediately forgotten that there was this eclosion of people being very happy, people going out all the time, uh, people going out at night until very late, people not sleeping at all, uh, as if we had, a, as if we had a, a, a perpetuous party all the time. And, uh, and of course sex came with that more than it had before. But... Uh, it was, it was because of that. Uh, uh, some people have said, and I think that they have said it rightly, that Franco died much before he did. He was dead. In fact, he was there, but he was absolutely dead, and the society had, had uh, evolved much faster, of course, than, than the regime. So it was just a matter of, of, of you know, like, like the cork of a bottle. You know, there was a cork preventing the uh, the wine to be poor uh, to be poured and, uh, and and once it was it was a big flow of course in all senses not only not only sex was before there yeah right i'm afraid uh, we're going to have to come to a close <clears throat> uh, before thanking javier can i just say that oh, thank uh, you not yet not yet <laughs> For yeah, are you, you going see. to say something disagreeable? That I because well, I, should, I should retire my thanks. N- n- no, uh, no, 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 no. But what I am going to say is that Javier's publishers have copies of the book outside. So if people, when they leave here, want to purchase a copy and would like to have it signed, Javier will stay here. I am told. I don't know whether you, you've agreed to this, but according yeah, to this um, piece of paper. Yeah, apparently. Uh, otherwise, it would be absurd that they had those books there. Right. So they Javier will stay here and will sign um, copies. Of course, signed copies of his books are immensely valuable, whereas in my, in my case, the signed copies are the, it's the unsigned copies are the valuable ones in my case. Well, in my case, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but. Um, Anyway, I want to thank Javier for for being with us and, and for sharing his thoughts with us, and I hope you'll join me now in thanking him.